Hey everyone, it's time to do the podcast here. It's Tim Pichot from Libertarian Advisor, and today we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, Drumbo Prees, Prees, healthcare. First, I want to discuss the politics of healthcare and why Trump was conned by the GOP leadership, particularly Paul Ryan, because Paul Ryan is the one who set the agenda in the House, and he's the one that convinced Trump that this would be a better issue to tackle first than, let's say, tax reform. Then I want to get into bad solutions but solutions that would be better than what was proposed. Because what we have right now is awful, and some of the Republican ideas, besides Rand Paul's, are even worse than what we have currently. And then ultimately, I want to get into the one thing no one is addressing about healthcare debate, and I mean no one is addressing this in any of the parties, so you want to stick around to the end to hear that. But first, let's get into the politics of healthcare. When Republicans, uh, you know, they voted something like 60 times to repeal Obamacare when Obama was in office, and all along I was telling people, this is a con. Half of those Republicans helped write Obamacare, and the other half don't have the balls to actually take it away. I mean, is it too outrageous to think that the only reason Republicans were voting and acting tough is because they knew Obama would never sign any of their laws into agreement anyway so it's you know it's easy to act tough when you know that you're gonna have no political repercussions of what you're doing anyways for eight years all we heard was repeal and replace repeal and replace however once the republican turncoats got control of everything they just decided to tinker around the edges with health care and that's not what we put them for we didn't put them in there to you know rearrange deck chairs on the titanic we didn't put them in there to you know make tiny adjustments we put them in there to have a complete repeal of Obamacare. Now the House version got rid of uh, the Obamacare capital gains taxes on the wealthy, which you know I think is good, but they force insurance companies to have to underwrite everyone. But if they didn't previously have insurance, so if you bought insurance, you didn't previously had it, what would happen is you'd have a 30% surcharge onto your bill. So if you had a $100 bill, like, yeah, it's laughable. I mean, who has a $100 bill? Well, I mean, I used to have a $70 bill before Obama was in office, and now it's uh, closer to $1,100 a month. So thank you for not only not making it my phone bill, but actually making it my annual phone bill every month. Really appreciate that. So the House bill is saying, okay, you had a policy for for 100 bucks that let's say all you know, 30-year-old uh, guys have to pay $100 for insurance. If you didn't buy your insurance, then basically the penalty would be you'd have to pay $130 for your insurance versus 100 but only for a year. And then afterwards, you can just drop down to the, other, uh, to the other rate. Now, why would any young, healthy person buy insurance if all they had to do is wait until they get sick and then they could buy the insurance, pay 30% more for just one year, and then they could then drop it? And now they wouldn't even have to, there's no stipulation that they'd even have to keep the insurance for a year. So it's just a terribly ill-conceived policy. Um, you know, it's sort of be like if you're driving around with no auto insurance, you know, or, you know, we'll just wait until you, you, you know, hit back into a parked car, then the auto insurance companies can then charge you 30% more, but they're instantly on the hook for the damages. So if insurance companies work this way, you know, A, it wouldn't be actual true insurance, and B, nobody would buy it until they need it. I mean, why would you spend thousands of dollars in premiums if you could just wait until you had an accident to buy it and then buy it for 30% more. Then after a year, you could just pay the same rate as everybody else. So, you know, you back into a car, it costs, you know, tons of damage. You go to, you know, any of the insurance companies and all they do is then charge you 30% more for your monthly premium and then they're instantly on the hook. And that's what the current insurance policies are actually proposing. Now, however, uh, not to be outdone, all the globalists in the Senate, you know, it's really hard to imagine this, but they decided to actually come up with an even worse proposal. 
And what they decided to do was they left the capital gains in there. So, you know, for all the you know Republican blowhards in the Senate talking about repeal and replace, you know, good luck with that. I mean, they couldn't even get rid of the one tax that's in there. But they also decided to remove the 30% surcharge. However, they did decide to add one caveat to that that was not in the House bill. Their version said you could not charge 30% more, but people who previously weren't insured had to wait six months before their insurance kicked in after applying for insurance. So, so let's say I go, you know, I, uh, I don't have insurance right now, hypothetically, uh, underneath the Senate bill, then what I could do is apply for, you know, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shields, you know, Humana, any of the ones that are even left here. And then after six months, they can't charge me any more, but they can give me the same rate as everybody else six months later. So if I have something that goes wrong in the interim, then uh, then I'm on the hook for that. So then that would be the incentive for people to uh, walk around with insurance. However, you know, a lot of people don't think like economists and a lot of the economists that are out there are really nothing more than just hired guns or mercenaries who greenlight any politician's dog shit idea as long as it suits their own career or pocketbook. For one, we have Jonathan Gruber who said, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have it in front of me, is this only passed because of the ignorance of the average American voter. And then he said this on many occasions. He tried to, when he was pressing this, say, oh, you know, these were just glib remarks that I was making off the cuff. But then he made, literally made the exact same off the cuff remarks, you know, 10 different videos that I've seen. And he also said on a few occasions that sometimes lack of uh, political transparency can be incredibly beneficial. Uh, and I think what Jonathan Gruber meant and the con he was trying to play was that traditionally people paid for their health insurance through employers. And by doing so, what that meant is that people would pay for these benefits using pre-tax dollars. But with Obamacare, what you're doing is you're shifting the burden from the employer to the individual. Now, getting off a little aside here, uh, I mean, I think that that's how it should be anyways, that you shouldn't be that uh, we shouldn't be relying on our employers. So anyways, we're shifting the burden back to the, uh, back to the individual. Now, the big difference here is that individuals, when they pay for the health insurance, are gonna be using post-tax dollars. And what this means is that the government has raised billions of dollars, AKA they stole money from the American people to uh, basically fill up their own coffers. And then to see this guy with his little, little you know, weaselly, you know, non-threatening nerd appearance, laugh about ripping off Americans, including me and my family. And believe me, I'm in Maricopa County right now, and we got basically screwed harder than anybody. Uh, on average, the rates went up over 120% per year. Mine went up over 120% last year. And you know, eventually, it's going to come down to you know, do I want to pay? You know, what it's going to go up to 100, 100% next year? I'm going to all of a sudden pay you know, $40,000 a year for insurance. I mean, at a certain point, you know, enough is enough. But, uh, you know, it really makes me want to go back to the days of tar and feathering when I see, you know, these little lightweights like Jonathan Gruber. And just so nobody, you know, gets anything, uh, you know, confused of where I'm coming with all this is that I think that it should go into the uh, individual markets that we should, you know, get away from, you know, having employers pay for insurance. If they want to give us an actual cash benefit that then goes to uh, paying this, and I'm all for that. But I, what I would also do is, let's say you pay $10,000 a year on your insurance, then you'd be able to then deduct the $10,000 off, uh, off your gross income, effectively achieving the exact same thing. But you know, you know, we're not in the same position we were you know, 50, 60 years ago, 
And, you know, I think people really need to get out of this mentality of, you know, having their employers pay for everything. Because a lot of times they think that the government's paying for something, but really what it's doing is it's driving on their own wages and making themselves worse off because, you know, that's money, those benefits, that's more money that could have went to them as an individual. So where I was going with the, this economics point before I got off on this Jonathan Gruber spiel is that as an economist, uh, particularly as an Austrian economist, I know there are ways to get around the Senate provisions. You know, the first way to get around the Senate provision is right now, uh, and it's pretty cheap, is that if you're going to buy, you can buy a six-month temporary policy. And what you can then do is you can wait, you can apply for, let's say I go to Blue Cross, I apply, I'm six, I've got a, a six months until my insurance uh, kicks in. You can buy a, a temporary insurance that lasts for six months. And then what you can do is if at the end of the six months, uh, you're healthy and nothing's wrong, well then you just cancel the policy with Blue Cross that was gonna go into an effect. Maybe go buy another one through you know Humana or Cigna, and then you got the six month clock rolling again, re-up uh, the temporary insurance, and then that's a way where you can effectively game the system. Now if something catastrophic were to happen to you, uh, at that point you could go with the real insurance, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, insurance, because really what it's really devolved into is more or less, uh, you know, another bureaucratic layer into healthcare bill payments, because it's not really insurance. But where I was going with all this is that once your temporary insurance is up and the six month window has been reached, uh, you know, then the insurance company will automatically have to let you on without charging you any more money. So that's a way that you can get around it right there, because the idiots in Congress and the Senate are clueless on how economics really works. They assume that everything happens in a vacuum and that one change over here won't affect something over there. You know, it's called the butterfly effect. And Nassim Talib, who wrote the book uh, Black Swan, actually wrote about this. But now I want to get back to the politics of this. So I've just demonstrated two gigantic problems with the Senate and House bills. Both of these bills, as written, would literally bankrupt the programs even quicker than you know this monstrosity known as Obamacare is already going to do. And guess what that means? That means that now Republicans and Trump are going to own this, meaning they're going to be the ones who get the blame. And today Trump tweeted out that it might be better to let Obamacare fail, and then he blamed a few Republicans, namely uh, Rand Paul. But for me, I mean, Rand Paul basically just saved your ass because the steamy pile of dog shit that you would have signed into law would have backfired on you guys big time. And for anyone who can't see this, you know, it's just astounding to me that why you'd even tinker around with this and basically make it worse if you're not going to actually have the balls to actually repeal this. And, you know, it's just absolutely crazy to me. But these proposals were written by globalists in the House and Senate who are in the pockets of the insurance companies and big pharma. So, of course, they're going to come out with a screw job right off the bat because that's what they do. Now, what I also want to get into is some bad solutions from Obamacare. And as a country, we've gotten so far away from freedom and individual liberty that it's embarrassing. Obviously, it's worse on the Democratic side, but Republicans are not exempt from killing our freedoms either. Besides Rand Paul and a few others in the Freedom Caucus, the rest of everyone in there is basically just trying to see how fast they can destroy our liberties. And I say a few in the Freedom Caucus because the only reason some of them voted against the bill or spoke ill of it or politically didn't want to you know, say how they were voting is because they were doing this for political reasons, not for philosophical reasons. Uh, let's take, for instance, our congressman right here, our, you know, anyone that lives on the west side of Phoenix or northwest side of Phoenix, uh, rather, uh, Trent Franks. He's, uh, you know, he was an ardent supporter of the TPP, and he was also the deciding vote 
when it came uh, in the early 2000s when George W. Bush reached out to him as the deciding vote to pass Medicare Part D. So, you know, whenever it's suitable for him to expand government uh, and then at the same time calling himself, you know, a member of the Freedom Caucus, it's absolutely sick. But I'm going to coin a new term right now that he is a fino. He is a freedom in name only. So we've all heard of rhinos, Republicans in name only, but Trent Franks, you are a fino. And uh, maybe just like fake news, maybe I'll be the first person to come out with that too. Who knows? Uh, but also for political, uh, political reasons, you know, this is the only reason people are doing stuff. They're not going, uh, they're not going on, you know, uh, you know, they're not coming from philosophy. And, you know, worse off, he's also a, you know, a McCain acolyte while at the same time posing as, you know, a freedom-oriented, freedom fighter. But, okay, you know, as Americans, you know, basically we've gotten to the point where we've become such, you know, you know, cuck jellyfish that, you know, the free market for right now seems like it's, you know, off the table. You know, maybe I'll throw this off the table. Uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm only going to talk about this right now, playing devil's advocate in order, but in order for healthcare to work, uh, with this current BS bill and the proposed bills, what we need to do is make Americans and actually all Americans buy it or drastically increase the penalty for not getting it. Because right now, a lot of healthy people are saying, I'm not sick, I can basically automatically get into Obamacare next year anyways. You know, why am I gonna buy this insurance that covers all these different things that I don't even need if I don't need that? So, you know, it, obviously though, on the other hand though, you've got people who are sick and elderly who are obviously going to buy it while the young and healthy aren't going to buy it. And honestly, it's a big screw job for the young and healthy because it's young and healthy who are subsidizing the other people who are uh, basically the older Americans right now. But right now, the penalty is so low that it doesn't really deter anyone from not getting it if that's their productivity to do so. And interestingly enough, the Supreme Court said that it was constitutional, and again, I mean, what a joke, that because the tax was so low is the only reason it's constitutional. But bottom line is you can have your cake and eat it too. If people can buy insurance after they're sick, they won't buy it until after they're sick. I mean, it's called moral hazard and politicians either need to have the balls to force everyone to buy it and then get voted out or have the balls to resort to freedom and then probably still get voted out. But you know, some of the Scandinavian countries are doing this and systems like this, uh, you know, they also have incredibly high taxes and again, I don't really want to uh, you know, go down that road, but it seems like we're already so far away from that road anyways that you know, if you're gonna have a screw job, you might as well have a screw job that actually works and doesn't rip everybody off. And now, this is the big issue that I've honestly, I've never heard anybody talk about this. I've never heard anybody even mention this. This is all coming from my own ideas as someone who thinks like an economist. But ultimately, to give healthcare or insure everyone in America, uh, one of the simple things no one's talking about is we need to have more doctors. Right now, everything that is happening in the medical field is discouraging people from becoming doctors, particularly family care doctors. I have a lot of friends and clients who are doctors, and the only one that decided to go into family care was a doctor who was third generation married to an anesthesiologist who's, who's going to be making bank. And so you can't you know, rely on, you know, okay, we just need to have a bunch of second generation you know. Uh, you know, doctors hopefully, you know, have their kids and indoctrinate them. And I know, uh, actually, I've got a, uh, actually, right now, who's helping me film this right now, Kendall, her dad's a doctor. And what did your dad tell you? What did your dad tell you and your sister right away? He basically said, you know, don't even don't even bother getting into healthcare because of all the stuff that's going wrong with it. But, uh, you know, I don't want to, I kind of want to give a shout out to my buddy, but I don't know if you want me doing that on here, but uh, you know who you are. So, uh, you know, shout out to you. 
but anyways, the reason uh, people aren't going into family care now is because the specialists are the ones making all the money and the opportunity costs of being in school until you're 30 and then not coming out of residency uh, and then coming out of residency, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt is not very appealing to anyone. Plus, they constantly have to deal with insurance companies, you know, giving them massive haircuts to the price of their services. You know, all the time, compliance costs are going up, regulatory costs going up, malpractice insurance costs going up, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so what this is doing, it's ensuring, well, yeah, no pun intended, that kids are not going to want to become doctors. And your sister is in, in biochem and someone that would probably have a proclivity to going into this and your dad told her not to go become a doctor. So if you've got people who, you know, if you've got doctors telling their own kids not to become doctors, you know, why would anybody want to become a doctor, you know, at this rate? So the number one thing we have to do is we have to convince more people to become doctors and passing a law isn't going to solve anything. But how do you convince people to become uh, a doctor? And really the first thing I would do as, you know, president or and how I'd use my boy pulpit or if I was in Congress is I would uh, try to pass a bill saying, I'd have doctors pay no income taxes whatsoever, federal income taxes, until all their student loans were paid off. And actually another idea I had was, better yet, is the federal taxes that they would have paid would actually now go to their student loans. So, you know, this proposal doesn't really help out that guy that's, you know, 45 years old and already paid off his student loans, but it would incentivize the next generation to then get into healthcare. So right now, let's say you're making 200. Uh, you're paying 30% in tax, so uh, federal tax, so you're paying $60,000. Again, once you add a state and local and everything else, it's probably way higher than that. But for argument's sake, let's say you're paying $60,000 in federal taxes. Under my proposal, I'd say those $60,000 goes to paying off your student loans. I think that would be uh, pretty popular amongst doctors. I think that also would encourage more people to become doctors. But since it's an idea that probably would work, of course, we're probably not going to see it. Okay, so that's part one. So part two is we need to make it easier for doctors to actually give away their services, aka you know treat people for free, which is something that you know used to happen before government got involved. And doctors were routinely giving away services. I know that Dr. Ron Paul, who I've modeled my desk after, this is the same uh, bumper sticker he has on his desk. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you might already know that right now. But uh, you know ultimately you know we need to make it easier for people to give away services. Right now they can't even really do that because there's so much liability that it's basically taking their ability uh, completely away from doing that. And so I don't have this detail completely hammered out because I'm kind of just winging this now. But you know, let's say Dr. Smith had a thousand clients. Maybe he treats 150 of them you know, on the house or for free. And maybe Mr. Smith then gets to waive all federal taxes relating to his practice income. And so it's not saying if he has another side gig or some other investment that he gets off on that too. It's just for his actual practice income to get uh, federal taxes removed from there. And obviously this would need a lot of fine tuning. Uh, you know, maybe another proposal could be if you render, you know, $100,000 of services uh, for, you know, for free, then maybe now we get to deduct $100,000 off your bill. But then this could obviously create other moral hazards, um, you know, such as maybe only taking on one or two people that have gigantic bills, so then that way you don't have to, you know, service other people. And there's, you know, then it might then encourage people to get maybe that guy to get more, um, more services than what he or she really needs. Uh, you know, maybe it could also encourage them to then build the companies even more. So there are, you know, there would have to be some things that have to be thought out in this. But right now we're so far away from this that I don't really even want to even get into all the hypotheticals because, you know, 
Congress is nowhere near even even trying to implement something like this. But what it would do is it would create an immense amount of competition and make kids want to become doctors. And so you can't force anyone to become a doctor. And if I had any say about it, you couldn't force a doctor to then treat you because if you're going to force a doctor to then give up their time to then treat you, then that's also known as slavery. And that's something that Rand Paul made that point a few years ago. And while we're on Rand Paul, let's talk about the biggest difference in his bill that isn't in the other bills. So Rand Paul, what he was doing, he's trying to say, okay, if you're a small business owner, uh, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a solo business owner of one, well then I'm gonna get screwed when it comes to buying insurance, but why can't I join with all the other financial planners in America to then create, you know, a gigantic group to then, you know, get insurance that way? Or maybe, you know, I, I do uh, triathlon, so maybe I can join, you know, the US, you know, Triathlon Association, and then since triathletes tend to be in better shape and tend to be taking care of our health a little bit better, then maybe we can get a better rate going, you know, with, you know, five, having 500,000 people in a group versus having a group of one. So again, that's just, you know, low hanging fruit, but of course, you know, why ask, you know, one of the only doctors in the Senate what they would do because, you know, that might make a little bit, um, that might make a little bit two cents. But anyways, if you guys want to support the channel, please head over to focalpointwealth.com, F-O-C-A-L pointwealth.com, where we have a process we use to make sure our clients are on track for their retirement. And I really feel that our process and methodology is, is second to none. So if you aren't getting great service now or you don't feel comfortable or confident about not running out of money in retirement, please give us a shot. Uh, we're a veteran-owned company, or at least 50% veteran, uh, with my business partner. And if in order to fight this fight, you need capital, we need resources, and really the more resources we get, the more capital we get, then we'll use that money to then help defeat the globalists and try to help make America great again. Uh, this last go-around, you know, I poured uh, a lot of effort into trying to defeat Trump on a, and again, this was year one of my business, so, you know, I you know, barely broke even, which was still, you know, still, you know, great. Uh, now things are really rocking and rolling. But in order to, you know, hire more people, you know, eventually get, you know, a little media operation underneath me, maybe make a run for Congress, you're going to need to, you're going to need money. And, you know, and the best way to do that is to support people who, you know, believe in the same ideas as you, people who aren't going to rip you off, people who are out to make, uh, make America great again for people that want uh, prosperity. But anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed this rant. It's time to uh, you know head out and rush our traffic right now, but I uh, appreciate everything and take care. One of the biggest paradoxes in retirement is that someone can greatly decrease the amount of risk in their portfolio while greatly increasing the chances of them running out of money in retirement. Now take the case of John, our sample client. So John, our sample client is 45 years old and wants to retire when he is 65. John is saving $1,500 per month and has $650,000 in retirement savings and he hopes to withdraw $5,000 per month in today's dollars when he retires. We assumed inflation was 3% and that John would increase his savings by 2% per year and that John would live to age 90. Currently John's retirement portfolio has a risk of 60 inside of it. Now with 100 being the most amount of risk or with actually with this program 99 is the most that risk allies will show so now let's go see what would happen if we try to decrease this risk so let's say somebody wanted to be really conservative they want to be really safe in retirement so let's say they brought their portfolio risk down all the way down to a 25 now let's see what what that would look like now as you can see this is a case where somebody thought that they were trying to be more conservative 
and decrease the amount of risk in their portfolio. But what they've actually done is greatly increase the chance of them running out of money in retirement. Now for anyone who is viewing this and wants to have their own uh, risk number done, uh, feel free to send an email to info at focalpointwealth.com and myself or one of my assistants would be glad to help you out. So what we can do is we can take a look at the amount of risk in your current portfolio. So once we put in all of your uh, current securities, we can see what the risk number is, we can see what the expense ratio is, then we can click on this, see what funds uh, those expenses are derived from. We can also uh, see where the dividends are coming from, what the potential annual return is, and we can also stress test your portfolio. So in this case, you'll see that if the financial crisis were to happen again, you could expect this portfolio to go down uh, quite a bit. And then what we can also do is we can then take a look at uh, maybe proposed portfolios of what might be a better fit for you given your goals and given the amount of risk. And then what we hope to do is greatly decrease the amount of uh, expenses inside of your portfolio and then while also putting you your risk more in line with something that you could handle. And again, we'd also be willing to go over the retirement map with you as well. Just please note that this is not a substitute for a financial plan, but it is a good uh, first thing to do to make sure you're at least on the right path. And then what I'd suggest from here is that for anyone over uh, $250,000, we will go ahead, do a full financial plan for you where we can see what your goals are and then ideally try to take on the least amount of risk to hit your goals and we can get into a much deeper dive when it comes to this stress test. The one you're currently looking at right now is only using straight line analysis and the financial planning software we use Monte Carlo analysis which is gonna do over a thousand different simulations of, of your retirement. And then what I can also do is I can overlay on bear uh, market examples. So let's say the year you retire, I can factor in what if the market were to go down 20%, layer in a thousand different permutations of your retirement on top of that using Monte Carlo, and that way we can make sure your retirement as, is as bulletproof as possible. Now, if you are a conservative, and let's say you are only willing to accept a 25 risk, there's much better ways to do, to do this and to go about it than just keeping your money in really low risk bonds or in cash, but for that, uh, I would direct you to sequenceofreturnrisk.com where I dive deeper into this subject or give one of us a call over here at focalpointwealth.com. Our phone number is 480-771-PLAN or 7526 or you can feel free to email me at tim at focalpointwealth.com or uh, you can go ahead and take the Riskalyze test which can be found at focalpointwealth.com uh, off to the right hand side or feel free to email one of us at info at focalpointwealth.com so we can get you on track for all of your retirement goals. Thank you very much.